Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. We're trying to break our record all the time. We're starting earlier and earlier. Good evening and welcome to Word in Your Ear. You, you've probably noticed, I'm David Hepworth, you've probably noticed that, 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 that there's a space on the sofa where normally there's a lanky, voluble uh, Mark Ellen, who's unfortunately not very well, so we all send our best wishes to Mark. He'll be with us soon. Uh, and so I'm holding the fort this evening. I hope you'll forgive me. And I hope you'll also enjoy the benefit that since Mark's not here, we can be finished by about half past eight. (laughs) I'm sure you'll agree. Uh, So tonight's proceedings are in two parts. In the second part, we're going to be talking to John Savage about his book about 1966. But we begin with Howard Sounds, uh, who you're probably familiar with from uh, his biographies of Bob Dylan and Paul McCartney and, uh, well, Rose West, I think, as well. Uh, Yeah. And I will not draw any parallel at all between that and this latest book, uh, which is Notes from the Velvet Underground, The Life of Lou Reed. Would you please welcome Howard Sounds. Thank you. So, Howard, you, know, you, you approach rock biography probably not in the way that most people do. Is that fair to say? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I was a newspaper journalist, which is why I wrote about Fred and Rose West. Um, for about the first 10 years of my career. And then I just started writing biographies because I had the luck, the good fortune, to break the Fred and Rose West murder story back in the mid-'90s. So then I wrote the book about it. The book was a success. I really enjoyed writing the book. It was a great experience. Um, And I thought, well, this is what I want to do. I don't want to be a newspaper hack anymore. I want to write books, and I want to write serious books. And so then I wrote a biography of Charles Bukowski, uh, the American writer, and then I just tried to pick people whom I was interested in. And Bob Dylan was the first uh, musician of those, and that was a success. And so when you've written a successful book, you tend to try to repeat that formula, I guess, to some extent. So with the Bob Dylan uh, uh, the book, that, that was quite a story, because you, 
you um, broke uh, a piece of information that wasn't widely known before then. Is that fair to say? Well, yeah. Um, it, it had been rumoured for years that Bob had been married more than once. I mean, I think most people knew that, but he, he's very, very secretive. I mean, he lives a very secretive life, um, places cards close to his chest. And I wanted to pin down how many times he'd be married and to whom. And the first wife was famously Sarah of Salad Lady of the Lowlands and Sarah and all those great songs. And I just went... Every time I did an interview, I did about 250 interviews for the Dylan biography, I asked people, well, you know, what about Bob's second wife? And then I got a first name and then I got a second name. And then I went downtown to the Los Angeles County Court Archives and I went through the marriage records until I found her. And so then I broke... Which is, is in itself just one page in a 400-page biography, but it made a lot of noise. Yeah. You know, Bob Dylan's secret marriage is a natural story. So how many years of marriage certificates did you have to go through? Well, I, I narrowed it down by speaking to people because people remembered vaguely when Bob was married and when... This is Carolyn Dennis, who was one of his backing singers. So people remembered vaguely when Carolyn was on the scene and they had a child together, and I worked out the age of the child, and I think I got the child's birth certificate first. And then when I knew when uh, Desiree, their daughter, was born, then I could look in the right years for the marriage. And, and then one day I just happened to find it. And indeed got the entire divorce file. The um, L.A. County Court gave me the whole file, which was stamped confidential. But either because <laughs> they, they didn't care... God bless America. ..or they weren't reading, or they were just bored, because, you know, clerks in, in courts are, are a terribly dreary life. They just said, oh, here you are. And I went away and read the whole thing. I was, my eyes were bugging, bugging out of my head. I wish I had the little secret camera I could uh, photograph. So you say you talked to 200 and some people in the course yeah. of, of doing that. Did you yeah. talk to his family? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, to my great surprise, I, I wrote to his children uh, by Sarah. Well, I think there's five by Sarah. Uh, Samuel, um, Jesse, Jacob, etc. And uh, one of them wrote back and said, well, come and see us. No. Yeah, and so I went, and, and this is one who's a, rec- he's a movie director in Hollywood, um, one of Bob's sons, and he said, come to see me, and I went into this swanky West Hollywood uh, production studio with sort of fake grass and fake palm trees in the office, you know, a typical you know, wacky place, and a big conference table, and there were Bob's kids, and there was a glass screen at the end of the room, and I was sure Bob must, he, surely he knew about this, I was thinking, he must, perhaps he's sitting behind the screen, you know. How can his kids have invited me here to talk about Dad, and Dad not know about it. But I don't know, I, I presume he wasn't there, but he never showed himself. But the kids then spoke, you know, about Dad, and it was fascinating because, of course, you know, Bob's kids see Bob Dylan quite differently to everybody else. I mean, he's, he's Dad. He's the guy that taught them how to ride a bike and took them swimming. And, um, so was that, uncondition- was that uncondition that you didn't attribute their yeah. quotes? Yeah. So it was just, it was background. Uh, well, I just, they just didn't, didn't want to be known. They didn't, didn't want to be identified. Right. Yeah. Saying anything rude about Dad. As, as would happen in any family, I suppose. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was a little bit vague, but I didn't, I didn't identify them by name. That was, okay. that, was, I, that was my understanding of our agreement. OK, so that's Bob Dylan. Your latest one is, is The Life of Lou Reed. Is, is there any coincidence the fact that you've written this after he's dead? Well, uh, no, I mean, I, uh, that, I guess that's why I wrote it, because it, it, pre- it presents a publishing opportunity. You know, publishers react to the news, as we all do, and when somebody dies and they see all the headlines and all the coverage, they, they say to themselves, oh, we must, have a Bob, we must have a Lou Reed biography. Now, I said to them, I said, look, 
Lou Reed never sold any records. You know, uh, journalists like Lou Reed. That's why there's all these long obituaries. You know, journalists love Lou Reed. I love Lou Reed since I was 14. But Joe Public is not interested. You know, Joe Public is not going to buy this book. It's not going to be a big seller. Um, but they, nevertheless, they, they react to the news. They see the front page of The Guardian. They think we must have the book. And, of course, they commission the book. And here we are, two years later. So how do you approach this? Similarly, you talk to 200 people? Yeah, I mean, a bit less, 140. I mean, uh, again, I, I... How do you start... get in touch with them? You just email well, them. Th- that's, as you know, that's, part of, that's the, one of the hardest things, is actually finding people and then convincing them to talk to you. I mean, that takes an enormous amount of time, and it's very frustrating... And then, of course, you have to do a lot of travel. They're, most, they're, they're all in the States. You have to go to the States and travel, and uh, this is very expensive. Um, I mean, I was thinking today of the, the trouble I went to to interview Mo Tucker, the underground drummer, who's a very eccentric person, lives down in a tiny town in um, Georgia, about four hours outside of Atlanta, and doesn't answer the phone, even though I had a phone number, and doesn't reply to emails. So, uh, or maybe replies to one email in ten, you know. So I get a recommendation from somebody. I send her an email. She doesn't reply. I wait every day. I'm looking at the email box. Has she, has she replied? Is she going to reply? Can I dare send another email and yet not seem too pushy? And then finally she replies and sort of gives me the vague understanding that if I come to this tiny town in Georgia, all the way from the Barbican where I live in London, she might just see me if I'm lucky. <laughs> And, you know, that's a very expensive thing to do. But, of course, she's a very important person. So what, I, I went and I drove for four hours from Atlanta and checked into the local Holiday Inn in this horrible town, you know, with the worst food you've ever had in your life, you know. I've never seen so much bacon. And uh, <laughs> every other building is, a, is a, some kind of evangelical church. It's a Bill Bryson town. Yeah, it? I mean, I, I had some of the worst food I've ever had in my life. And yet, uh, there she was, you know, living... So she turned up. And nobody in this town knows who she is. So she's how old now? She's um, pushing... She's, she's younger than the others, but she'll oh, right. be about 68. Oh, OK, right. So, yeah. so with Lou Reed, let's, let's, let's go back to the beginning. And I've, I've taken the liberty of, of finding some, uh, some pictures of, of... For a bit of background. You know, we always associate Lou Reed with the mean streets of, you know, Manhattan and Harlem and so forth. That's the house he grew up in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so this is Long Island, is that right? Yeah, this is Freeport, Long Island. And Long Island, as you may know, has a ritzy, fashionable part. Well, it has several. It has, it has the Hamptons, where all the millionaires and billionaires live. And it has the North Shore, which is where the Great Gatsby was set. And it has the South Shore, which is a bit like uh, the London Borough of Bexley. In fact, where I'm from. And this is uh, the South Shore. This is uh, Longwood Avenue, Freeport. And it's your classic 1950s American three-bedroom detached bungalow. I mean, with cladding. And um, it was, you know, Lou told the uh, murder maker in 1976 that he was the son of millionaires, which was a lie. Uh, and he also, of course, gave the impression he was a sort of child of the streets, which was also actually a, a fiction. Well, it's all rock stars do this, don't yeah. they? They all, yeah. they all imply that they're raised by wolves yeah. and so forth. Absolutely. <laughs> In truth, and they, they all usually, come from houses like that. I mean, the Rolling Stones. Yeah, they they're, all come from they're, houses. They're lower middle class. I would like to do yeah. a, a, a big picture book of rock stars' homes, where they grew up, yes. and then where they ended up. Yes. You know? and we'll we'll follow that line yeah, this yeah. evening. Um, so, just give us an idea. This, of his this, is, this is probably his bedroom, actually, just down the back here. Yes. By the way, and when he quit the Velvet Underground, uh, he went back here. Um, this is where he retreated. So it's the same house in 1971. Absolutely, at yes. the end of all oh, that we'll amazing come, music. We'll come. We'll come to that in due course. That's interesting. So, 
His parents were... Was it Sid? Sid, uh, an accountant, and Toby, um, a stenographer. Right. So, very conventional, kind of small businessman... Uh, well, he was a certified public. Ac- he was an accountant, right. certified public accountant, right. uh, Jewish immigrant stock, um, you know, uh, lower middle class. But he had, he had a very tense relationship with them. Well, Lou, um, of course, one of the key um, events in Lou's life is he has a complete nervous breakdown in his freshman year at college at New York University at the age of seventeen. He just has a complete a crack up. Not quite. No one really knows why. Um, and he retreats to the family home, and um, his parents seek um, expert advice, and the expert advice is that your son's suicide, or he needs um, electric uh, convulsive therapy, electric shock therapy, which then was, was quite fashionable, and, you know, and is still actually carried out today. It's not, it's not a thing of the past. Um, but he went through the ECT, very traumatic, and he blamed his father for it. And probably unfairly, because Bunny, his sister, whom I interviewed for the book at some length, says that, you know, the parents were just trying to do the best they could. Uh, they followed the advice they were given, and but Lou resented it forever yeah. afterwards. Which resentment being a theme that runs through this book all the way through. Yeah, and he's a, he becomes a very bitter, angry, resentful, right. chippy man. This is him at uh, a high school? Yeah. Uh, Lewis, full name. Lewis Allen Reed, yeah. Tall, dark-haired Lude likes basketball, music, and naturally girls. Yes. Of which more later. <laughs> Brackets bo- and boys, of course. He was a valuable participant on the track team. He's one of Freeport's great contributors to the recording world. Yeah. As for the immediate future, Lou has no plans, but will take life as it comes. So, yeah. was it a fairly happy school? Well, apart from his... The school um, years, was that quite happy? He was clever, introverted, a bit difficult, a little bit shy... Um, he had girlfriends, and um, but he was—I don't, you know—he had obviously had a, an issue about his sexuality. He, he had trouble relating to girls, I think. I mean, surprisingly, he was on the track team. You know, he did—he did sports and he did conventional things, and he actually r- r- ranked quite highly in his year. I mean, he graduated sort of in the top right. top ten percent, I think. So he goes to university. This is Syracuse University. Yeah. There he is in a very fine yeah. piece of knitwear in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and looking quite happy. Absolutely. High is that, school band. Is that the uh, Kingston Trio or something uh, like that? This is, um, I forget the name of the high school band, the El Dorados. Right. A- L.A. and the El Dorados. Okay. El Falou. So from early on, he, he wanted to play music. Is that Oh, yeah, so? absolutely. And wrote and wrote. I mean, that was the, the big thing. He wasn't a very good guitarist, never was, although he said that he was as good as Jimi Hendrix. He was a pretty limited singer. I'm sure you heard him and saw him. He was a pretty, you know, he, he, he sang like Rex Harrison sang. <laughs> um, you know, he, he narrated his songs, which is fine. I thought that was great. Um, uh, but really, he was a writer, and he wrote from when he was at school. He wrote short stories. He wrote poems. He was one of those rock and roll poets of the early 60s, Leonard Cohen, Bob Dylan, Lou Reed. So at Syracuse University is where he has the breakdown. And, and uh, No, no, no. he has the breakdown at NYU, okay. uh, um, freshman year, then has to quit NYU, and then starts all over again the next year at Syracuse. Oh, OK, right, fine, yeah. fine, fine. So I think he's first... If, he's, if we come to this next, if my iPad works... This is, this is his first um, 
yeah. brush with the music business. Yeah. Now, how does this how does this work? He's he gets a, a job with Pickwick yeah. music publishers. So uh, when he's at Syracuse, a guy comes up to uh, Syracuse one weekend um, who runs a small record label uh, in suburban New York called Pickwick, and he says, Lou, I want a songwriter to write, basically to write pastiches of pop hits, so pastiches of surf songs, biker songs, whatever was fashionable in vogue in 1966 or 65, 64... Um, and come and work for me. Uh, this guy's called Terry Phillips, and Lou goes to work for Terry Phillips after college, writing pastiches of Beach Boys hits, Beatles hits, whatever's fashionable. Making up dance trends. Yeah, yeah. and then he, he invents this mad dance called the ostrich. I think we can hear it yeah. by the miracle of YouTube and Terry. All right, everybody get down on your So that's how you do the ostrich, ladies and gentlemen. And he's singing that, and he's, he's drunk, sing- by the way, or stoned when he's doing it. It's a fantastic sound, though, isn't it, really? Uh, well, it, is it? Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. It's one of uh, my okay. favourite Lou Reed songs. I've well, only heard it while, yeah. uh, you know, while, while looking into this. So, so how does that lead to the Velvet Underground? Well, I mean, the legend is, and I guess it's true, that um, uh, the guy that ran Pickwick, Terry, wanted a band to take this terrible song out on the road and, and promote it to actually appear in public. Because Lou and his, and his colleagues in the studio, which was just like a warehouse with one mic, they recorded it, but they weren't personable enough to actually go and stand in high schools and supermarkets and shopping malls and promote it. So Terry hired... Uh, Remarkably enough, John Cale, alumni of Goldsmiths, friend of John Cage and Yanis uh, Zanakis, you know, the leading modernist composers of the, of the day, a protege of Aaron Copeland, no less. He hires John Cale, who he meets at a party, Lou, um, a guy who, two guys from Harvard, by the way, who, who are friends of John's, to form this, this make believe band called the Primitives, which, who ostensibly performed the ostrich which is his first sort of entree into show business. And how does that become the Velvet Underground? Well, um, the other two, you know, soon wander off, and, but, but, but John Cale sees some talent in Lou, likes his songs. He's already written uh, Heroin, he's already, already written I'm Waiting for the Man, uh, and John sees a way to arrange these songs, because he was writing these songs but performing them on acoustic guitar in the style of Bob Dylan. I mean, he was under the influence of Bob Dylan, as everybody was, but John Cale saw a, a different way of bringing modernism to this. You know, right. the drone, the ideas of the avant-garde, Lamont Young, making the, the, the song slow, as he said, slow and sexy and mysterious and dark. And, of course, that's what he, that was his brilliant contribution. Because that's one of the points made in the book, and I can't remember, there's, an, there's, there's a quote from somebody who's contrasting John Cale and Lou Reed. John Cale could yeah. do everything. Yeah. He was a genius. Yes. You know, yes. And Lou, anything, Lou could do one thing. Yeah, and without Lou, you know, we wouldn't have heard of... Uh, of uh, without John, we wouldn't have heard of Lou Reed, probably. And I think that he, he, he resented that. You know, right. He resented that. Well, yes, because... So this is the kind of... You know, I always have the feeling that if you're in a successful group, you're married to them for all time. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you do. And this is a very complicated marriage oh, with all these word. people, yeah. isn't it? Because you, you've got... You've, Obviously, you've got Andy Warhol. So how does yeah. Andy Warhol get involved? So, well, they meet Andy. Andy's looking for a band to put on in, in a, at a disco. And his, his oppo, Gerard Malanga, sees the Velvet Underground um, 
performing in the village, in Greenwich Village, and he says, Andy, come down and see these guys. They're pretty outlandish. The, the drummer's a girl... Mo, which was at the time virtually unique. Well, I don't know. The honeycombs had. Well, the... I think that's the only other example, isn't it? Okay. Uh, you know, this guy is playing a viola on stage. Yeah, that is unique. So he wants to break it. Um, and then you've got Lou singing about heroin, of course, um, and, and songs like the Black Angel's Death Song. And then you've got dear old Sterling, who's sort of strumming along on the side. And uh, Andy thought they looked pretty cool, and so he hired them, and that's how we get. The Velvet Underground. And then he puts Nico together with them because Nico has independently come to New York to try to get into the um, American music business. So she's, she's very much the front person of the group Yeah, because, at that uh, time. She's uh, the star. Yes, because she, and she's been in, in Fellini's uh, La Dolce Vita uh, and she's made a record in London and she's got a bit of a name and she's very beautiful. She was a Vogue model. Um, and these guys were all you know, completely unknown. So the fact that she's very beautiful did not escape Lou's attention. No, so, you know, I mean, Lou is bi- was bisexual. Now, Lou would never use the word bisexual, but the facts speak for themselves. You know, he, he, he had lovers of both sexes. And I think also opportunist- opportunistically, it was a way, as um, one of his friends told me for the book, of controlling the situation. Now, he didn't want Nico to run the band. He didn't want her, her to sing his songs. I think by having an affair with her... He was a way of somehow controlling her right. and, and putting her sort of under his wing. OK. So tell us about the relationship between him and Andy Warhol. Well, I mean, I, I'm sure that Warhol taught him a great deal. I mean, Warhol, of course, was a great genius, um, uh, you know, master of media manipulation, um, gave Lou lots of good advice, told him things like, you don't have to tell journalists the truth, you know, which is, uh, you know, a key bit of advice for an aspiring uh, rock star. And, and, of course, Lou was a... I mean, you probably interviewed him, was a famously difficult interviewee. Well, we've discussed on these very sofas many times in the past that Lou Reed hated journalists... Always talked about how he hated journalists. And it's my contention that no human being in history paid so many PRs, so much money, to put him in rooms with journalists than Lou Reed. Because all he ever did was talk to journalists. Yeah, and... uh, That's how he did his PR. There was no advertising or whatever. When he came to tour, he'd be in some hotel abusing a trail of journalists going in and out. (laughs) And usually the wrong one, young ones wrote, you know, glowing pieces. I've just been given a hard time by Lou Reed. You know, whoopee, I've joined the club, you know. And the older ones wouldn't go anymore, you know. But that's yeah. what he did. And did you find him obnoxious? I, I, I didn't interview him, but I met him a couple oh. of times. I mean, I, the, well, the, the warmth didn't come off him, I think that's fair to say. <laughs> no. You'd, you'd have been, you know, with him a long time before the bonhomie would have, you know, <laughs> um, you know yeah. come out there. But, uh, you know, it's like lots of these people, I think, I think it's a point you made earlier, that they are kind of shy underneath it all, and it's, it manifests itself in a sort of arrogance, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think insecure. I think insecure about his sexuality, um, very thin-skinned, hated bad reviews... And, he, and let's face it, he made some very bad records. I mean, you know, albums like Sally Can't Dance, Rock and Roll Heart. I bought all these albums when they came out. I was you a didn't. fan. I, I took them home and I thought, why did I spend five pounds on this record? There are Lou Reed records that I've barely listened to to this day because they were so bad. So you never learnt. So you're always trying to re- yeah. rediscover the thrill of Transformer or whatever it was. Because the first one I bought was Transformer and it was brilliant. And I thought, they're all going to be like this. Fundamental, you know, elementary I, I mistake know. in popular music and thinking that people can do it, it again It took me about again. 20 years to work out that I was on a, a high on to nothing. <laughs> right. So, but anyway, they go on to make, you know, this is the first album. Yeah, and of course this is all brilliant. You know, uh, the Velvet Underground was... So what's on this one? Has this got 
Venus all the classics, all the classics. I'm waiting for the man, uh, heroine, um, Black Angel's Death Song, Sunday Morning, all the classics. And the book is called Notes from the Velvet Underground because I think the Velvet Underground is really lose claim to fame. The quality of the work he did with John Cale, and I think he needed John Cale to do do work that was that that good, was so much better than the work he did as a solo artist. And and so much more inventive and brave and uh, and interesting uh, and has lasted much longer. So everybody acknowledges this as a classic, but yeah. my memory is at the time it came out, nobody bought it at all. Well, yeah, indeed, indeed, nobody bought it. I mean, if, but a few key people, I mean, people like famously David Bowie and uh, Chris Stein from Blondie, people like that, you know, heard it, loved it right from the start. You know, the cognoscenti, as it were, the, the up-and-coming generation knew it was a masterpiece. And I think, but it, it didn't sell. And I think to, to this day, it's probably sold maybe, um, Lou's a lawyer was telling me that he think it sold three million copies which seems actually quite optimistic but you know over what 40, over a long period well, yeah, 40, 40 years, years around the world yeah yeah, yeah yeah so uh, i mean was he bitter at the fact, about the fact that he hadn't sold Oh, I think so. I think they, they all were. I mean, Mo would say that they could, she couldn't believe it. They go to play a town like St. Louis, or they go and play San Francisco, and they go into the local record shop, and they couldn't. And the record wasn't even in the racks. Oh, well, they always say that. They, let me tell you, it was in the racks in Dewsbury, in Yorkshire, <laughs> <laughs> gathering coats of dust. Acts always say our record wasn't in the shops. They, it's, a, it's a standard excuse, but she may have been right in that case. So they go through their their ups and downs. Yep. My, this record comes out in late 1970 yep. in, uh, in the States and 1971 in the UK. By then, he's left the group. Well, he finishes this... Well, he, he, he half finishes this album, which has some great songs in it, of course, Sweet Jane and New Age, uh, rock and roll, of course. Uh, but, you know, by this stage, he's really... Uh, there's a guy called Doug Cale... Uh, Doug Yule, who was really becoming the new frontman of the band. There's a problem with the manager. Lou falls out with all of his managers, by the way, throughout his career. He has this, you know, he has hatred. He hates his managers almost as much as he hates journalists. Like Van Morrison. Yeah, very okay. standard. It's amazing that Lou and Van never got together. <laughs> Um, and you know he and so that he he quits he just quits he quits one evening at the uh, Max's Kansas City and he go and he has a breakdown. One of the things I found out, uh, uh, which is new in the book, is that his sister Bunny, um, who knew him longer than anyone, and actually stayed in contact with him. She didn't fall out with him almost uniquely. So she knew him right throughout her life. Um, whereas he fell out with his you know his parents and almost all of his friends. Um, she said he had another nervous breakdown, a second nervous breakdown, just, up, just as when this album came out, and that's when he went home again. And this was f- after five years of leading the Velvet Underground, having made, what, some of the best music of the 1960s, having made no money, no one knew who he was. The week of the Woodstock Festival, they were playing a roadhouse in Deerfield, in Massachusetts, like, to like 30 people. Yeah. I mean, the guy was, must have been completely devastated. Yeah, I was uh, the, the, the tiny bit de- detail that I, I read about about the, him going home was that his parents came and picked him up. Yeah, they well, drove him from Long Island to pick him up on a street corner in Manhattan, and it was like it's like a boy has gone to college and it hasn't worked out. Yeah, and I think he relied on his parents much more than he let on. You know, he gave the impression that his father was a complete uh, a brute uh, who abused him and and beat his mother. Uh, but actually, you know, Lou was in close contact with his parents throughout his life. His dad did his books in the 70s, went through his books. You know, his dad was an accountant. Quite. Nothing wrong with that at all. So, so 
He goes home to Long Island and, and has pretty much turned his back on it, hasn't he, at, yeah, at the uh, time this record comes out? To pretty good well, reviews. Yeah, I mean, th- th- this becomes a lawsuit because of the way the album, the songs are credited to the band rather than him. Um, and he's really washed up. No one will touch him. No record companies want to touch him. He has this nervous breakdown. He's, he's, he's in his late 20s, so he's no, long, no longer exactly young. He's no longer pubescent. I mean, one of the things Andy Warhol liked about him was that he was cute and yeah. pubescent, as he said in his words. But not anymore. Not man, anymore. Yeah. Now he's a rather grumpy man pushing 30. Yeah. yeah. And along comes... David Bowie. Well, yeah, there's a first solo album which is absolutely awful, uh, which is one of those records I bought and wish I hadn't, which has got that Fabergé egg on the cover, if you know it, which is just terrible. And no one bought that. That was a flop, and he was lucky to get that album out with RCA. And then by, you know, the greatest good fortune, David Bowie, who just signed to RCA, loved the Velvet Underground, said to RCA, look, I, I will rescue this man's career. I will produce him, me and Mick Ronson, and we'll do a good job. Because you know the story about David Bowie going to see him and uh, going to see the Velvet Underground in 1971 in New York. He's out there doing a press trip and he decides he's going to see the Velvet Underground because he's heard all about them, he's really enthused. And he goes to the gig and he manages to get backstage and he raves on at the singer thinking he's talking to Lou Reed. And he's not. He's talking to Doug Yule. Yeah, yeah. And the, it's an interesting point. The Velveteen the, Underground. The, because... People's pictures were not seen all over the place. No. They were not on videos or anything like that. There was no. a great mystique about these kind of acts, yeah, yeah. you know. But he was definitely the guy that, you know, bo- both Lou Reed and Iggy Pop were both on the point of giving up mm. when David Bowie came, al- yeah. came along. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, rescued his career, really. So that's the record. That's the record that so I first 72, heard. is that right? 72, yeah. Um, 73, okay. uh, just the, the, the cusp of. And, of course, it yielded this um, hit single, which, which wasn't really a monster hit. I think it was number two in the UK, number nine in the So we're US. talking about Walk on the Wild Side. Walk on the Wild Side. Sounds nothing like anything else he ever did. No. I mean, it doesn't sound like him. This doesn't even look like him, by the way, this Mick Rock photograph. I mean, he didn't look as good-looking as that. He didn't sound as smooth as that, but a beautiful production job by David Bowie. And, of and course, the great Herbie Flowers on the bass. Herbie Flowers was wonderful, you know, he got paid the twenty-five pounds. Yeah, um, and you know the thunder fly, 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 thighs. These three girls um, whom I met, and who, by the way, are all white. By the way, yes. One, and one of them lives in retirement in Cambridge. So, thunder thighs are retired, living yeah. in Cambridge. Oh, That's well, great. What, what, one is missing. Oh, really? No one knows where she is. So, presumably, a member of Thunder Thighs is going down to the post office in in Cambridge, picking up a pension. Yeah, and she sued Lou when um, Walk on the Wild Side was used for a Honda ad and he didn't pay her a royalty and she yeah. sued him. Yeah. And what? But, but it is extraordinary that, you know, the luck that, that attaches to these things because in the book it says that, you know, Lou was hardly there in the studio when they were making these records. Indeed. I mean, Ken Scott, who was the Beat- one of the Beatles engineers and engineered uh, David Bowie's albums, says that he was completely stoned non compass mentors. Yeah. Um, uh, this photo, by the way, was taken at the Scala in King's Cross. Um, so it's all very local. And, of course, Transformer was made in London. So I just wanted to touch, uh, as long as decency uh, allows us, on the subject of, of Lou's sex life. Yeah. And tell us about this relationship. Well, this is, I just think, fascinating. I mean, Lou, as I say, was a bisexual. He, had, he was married three times, um, 
Um, but then in the mid-70s, he met this guy called Richard or Ricky. No one really knows his name. No one knows his surname. Um, he so was, that, that's he. That's he. he was, he's a transvestite. They met in a bar when Lou was completely stoned in New York. Um, Ricky was from Philadelphia, we think, a hairdresser by background. And Ricky had this alternate personality, I guess what now would be called a trans personality, as Rachel. Um, he rarely dressed in full drag, though I think he is here in full drag. As you see, he was bigger than Lou in his heels. He was also a good fighter. Um, he was very handy at gigs. When the gigs got too rowdy, he would, uh, you know, he would push people out of the way. And he loved Lou. I mean, I think it's actually it's a love story. And three years into this relationship, here in London, after playing the Victoria Theatre... They went to a nightclub in German Street, a gay club in German Street of the day, and they celebrated their three years together with this wedding cake. So really this is a, a faux marriage, actually. And you see that Lou actually looks a little bit abashed, I think, even like he can't quite believe he's doing this. But, you know, he does love this mad kid um, who had a lith, by the way. I would call him Lewis. So was oh, Lou Lewis. married to a... Well, if you call that a marriage... No, was he married to a woman at this time? He... No, oh, right. no. So his first marriage was to Betty, whom he called the cocktail waitress, who was a kind of an actress um, in New York. His second marriage was to Sylvia in the uh, late 70s, and, the, and his third was to Laurie Anderson, of course, the famous performance artist. Right, right. We'll, we'll come to this. So he... he I, I just had to share this. This is, how, this is a very sophisticated piece of... Artist promotion from New Zealand. The rock and roll animal yeah. is loose. I'm sure he would have been thrilled when he saw that. But, yeah. he, but he did turn into kind of late 70s, post-rock and roll animal. He was a big kind of boogie yeah, monster, well, wasn't he? Well, RCA promoted him as the rock and roll animal, uh, the phantom of rock. This was just a, you know, a crazy made-up PR... Because he was kind of dark, maybe, and a little bit unknown, and he wrote about the streets and about drugs and transvestites. So he was, his, his persona was the rock and roll animal. And I think one of the themes in the book is that he, unfortunately, in the 70s, allowed himself to de- degenerate into self-parody. Right. Um, rather than you know, writing you know, proper music and good songs, he kind of hid behind the image. Um, and for a while there, he was simply the image, this guy with the black glasses um, who used to shoot up on stage or pretend to shoot up on stage just to sort of uh, live up to this PR image that had been created for him. So what was his kind of drug, drink, you know, um, regime? Well, right through his life and contrary to what he would like you to think, he was an alcoholic and right up to the end he was drinking. And it's no coincidence that he died of liver-related problems. I mean, he ruined his liver with years and years of alcoholism. Um, He tried heroin at college uh, very early on when he was actually a teenager, but his drug of choice was methamphetamine. And he used to tell his friends, I'm going to take meth every day for the rest of my life. It makes me feel like Superman. Because you, don't you tell you talk about one incident in the book where he tries to get this prescribed, doesn't he, by a doctor? Yeah, and so on tour in Europe, his favourite trick was to go to a hotel. So he'd book into Rome, uh, he'd ask for the hotel doctor. Hotel doctor would come, he said, Look, I'm depressed, I need some uppers. And then so he, what do you mean you're depressed? You're Lou Reed. And they would, they, they would, they would give him some drugs. He said, No, it's not, I don't want those drugs, I want the good drugs. Then he'd get out um, a, pharma, a pharmacological reference book and he would show the Italian quack the exact drug he wanted, which was a very, you know, a strong uh, amphetamine. And then he would get a prescription, which meant he could take it through customs. So he's successful in doing this. Yeah. So he knew what he was doing. So 
This is one of the... You can't talk about Lou Reed without just yeah. briefly touching upon Metal Machine Music, yeah. which gets reissued every ten years, and we get learned pieces in the papers saying it's been much, much misunderstood. Yeah. Has it been much misunderstood, or was it understood perfectly? Well, I mean, I think it was. I mean, it's amazing that you still meet people to this day who tell you that it's a great album, and it's a sort of work of avant-garde art. I mean, it's four sides of completely random feedback, and it was made as a fuck you to RCA, because Lou's contract called for two albums a year, and as Michael Fonfara, his his sort of number number one guy at the time, told me, Lou said, look, I, I haven't got enough songs for another album this year year to RCA they said well you still owe us another album so he said right and he went upstairs to his bedroom literally his bedroom uh, hooked up a a guitar turned on the uh, tape recorder left the room (laughs) and the record was made in his absence and the record was made yeah and that is the record Four so sides of it. His relations, his relations with the record companies were never good at all. He, no. He tried everybody over the years. He never got on with anybody. You no. talk, I think there's an incident in here where you talk about Charles Levison, who used to run Arista in, yeah. in the UK. Yeah, he was yeah. a very mild-mannered person. Yeah. Went from meeting with Lou... Uh, well, and according to the PR who was there, Howard uh, Harding, whom you may remember, Lou pulled a gun on him. Pulled said, a gun... Why aren't my records? Why, why aren't there posters of for, for the Bells? His album was the Bells at the time in, in 1979. Why aren't I seeing posters for my album in London? And you know, as, as artists always say these things. And Leveson said, "Well, Lou, we're doing our best." And he pulled a gun on him. A gun. And he often pulled knives on journalists. Yeah, he, he pulled all kinds of weapons on all kinds of people, didn't he? Yeah. I mean, just about every member. You you interview a lot of people who. Played in his bands. Oh yeah, um, and they all talk about. Oh, of course, Lou stabbed me. Or... Well, he, he wouldn't. He wouldn't. He, I mean, I don't think he was really a fighter. He was a poser. So he would pull a knife at one one ludicrous occasion over breakfast in Holland. He 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 got hold of the butter knife and sort of you know waved it at the Dutch journalist. I mean, you're not going to do much dam- danger with a, damage with a butter knife. <laughs> so, but anyway, all bands eventually reform yeah. if there's a large enough yeah. check. Yeah. And was it 1993? Yeah. When they came back together? And Vox had a great front-page headline. Vox magazine, so glad to be back under this picture or a similar picture. Because <laughs> it, was, it was misery for all of them. Was Lou, it really? Lou made it misery for all of them. Because Lou was a star. Um, Mo was retired working for Walmart, if you can believe it. Um, Sterling was piloting a tugboat in Houston... And John Cale was doing his avant-garde music, brilliant though it is, no one buys it. Lou was a, a star of a type, and Lou just made their lives a misery. Even Mo, who loved Lou, um, was his best friend in the band, told me that he drove her absolutely crazy, and she wished that Sterling would punch him. So when they flew over from uh, the States to... Um to play in the UK, I yeah. think, it started. Didn't, did Lou flew first class? Lou flew first class in the bubble of the 747, and they were all in the cheaper seats, sort of downstairs and at the back. Crushed <laughs> uh, in at the back. Lou had a bodyguard, nobody else did, um, and Lou had the, you know, the sort of the $10,000 sound system, special effects box, and, you know, uh, Sterling didn't even have a guitar at this stage, you know. He was a big one for technology, wasn't he? He was a yeah. sucker for... Uh... Absolutely. Uh, Tell us about... Well, he was what they call in the business a gearhead. He loved right. gear. He loved microphones. He loved guitars. And he was borderline autistic, I think. So he was, he would, all night long, he would sit at a mic in his, in his apartment in New York and play a guitar. 
you know, maybe um, uh, 10 inches from the mic, 6 inches from the mic, 4 inches, and then he would write all this down. And he would get his roadie to keep lists of all these things. Uh, it, was all, it was a kind of mad, autistic um, experimentation with the technology. But actually, paradoxically, he was no good at using technology. I mean, he couldn't even use uh, you know, the internet. He had oh, really? to have someone to help him. Well, that, that tends to go along with rock stars, that they, yeah. don't, they can't use mobile phones and the internet and whatever. So anyway, the, you know, the big love of his life... Yeah, Laurie Anderson. A wonderful, that wonderful. Yeah, a wonderful person. I think a great artist, as great an artist as he was at his best, and probably a match for him. And I think it's fair to say that by the end of his life, he'd mellowed somewhat, though he could still be absolutely obnoxious. And uh, I mean, right at the end when he was dying, I mean, he gave a he gave a, he did an event rather like this in New York, and people were talking at the back, and he suddenly said, "Shut up." You know, in a really nasty, aggressive way. Yeah. I mean, it was just a a ball of hate. But so there's a nice story in here. I think it's Bob Gruen takes a picture of the two of them together. Is it Bob Gruen? And uh, and he wants a copy of it, which he... Well, he said, yeah, Bob Gruen, the rock photographer, takes a picture of Lou and Laurie and sends them to Lou uh, as a kind of, you know, a friendly sort of PR thing to do. And Lou writes back and says, you know, thanks. I I gave them to my mum and she's put them on her wall. Uh, You know, that makes mum happy. And if mum's happy, I'm happy. Uh, you know, so we see a different side to him. Of course, he wasn't always a complete shit. I mean, that was that was part of what he was. He he could be a monster, but he's complicated. The reason one writes these books is about you know he's an interesting man. He's an interesting subject. You know, he, he could be. You know, he was very up and down, and you know, very sensitive. I think overly sensitive, and often he his, the aggression was a way to defend himself. It's interesting that you, you say he didn't never, never really had any hits after Walk on the Wild Side or Transformer or whatever. But if you keep going long enough, you do eventually become quite wealthy, don't you? Yeah. In this kind of game. And he, he lived most of his career in, in a terrible financial muddle. Uh, but in the last 20 years, there was a big hold-up in his uh, royalties from the 70s uh, due to a legal dispute. All that money started to flow through, and when he died, he was worth about thirty million. You know, a, a, a huge surprise. So that was the house that uh, that he was living in in Long Island. Well, that's I think. where he died. This is, uh, uh, I mean, one of the things. Um, the estate agents advertised. Yeah. If anybody's interested. Uh, Dion, Dion, the singer, said to me, "Look, this is funny." Lou always said, the, the, "My great greatest fear in life is the suburbs." You know, I left the suburbs as soon as I could, and I'm never going back. But, of course, what does he do in his, in his old age? He buys a house on Long Island, where he grew up. And this is the house. Now, actually, it's in the Hamptons. So this isn't, this isn't the shitty you know, London Borough of Bexley. There's no riffraff you know, here. This is Kensington. This is right at the end with Paul McCartney next door and, you know, and all these guys. And, but, actually, he dies here. And he dies in the garden, more or less, in the back here, uh, with Laurie holding him on a Sunday morning in October two years ago. Sunday morning. Yeah. Yeah. Too poetic for yeah. words. Well, it's an extraordinary story, and it's an enthralling read, and uh, there's copies of it outside if anybody wants to, to buy one, and I'm sure Howard would be delighted to sign it if he did. Would you please thank Howard Sounds? This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.